Weird question. When was the last time you heard a preacher preach on one of the rape narratives in scripture? Probably never, right? Did you even know that was a thing? Well, today, my friend Mary DeMuth is going to talk about why we need to listen to those stories. Hashtag church too. Hey friends, I'm Mark Allen Shelsky, and this is The Apprenticeship Way, a podcast about spiritual growth following the way of Jesus. This is episode 23. It's time to listen to the survivors. Now, before we start, I've got an upcoming event that I want you to know about. I know that I've got a lot of friends and followers that are writers and creative people, and this is just for you. Coming up at the end of October, I am hosting a weekend retreat for writers and creatives. It's called The Writer's Advance because we're going to advance our projects. This isn't one of those sit and take notes while experts talk about how things worked out for them kind of retreat or conference. This is a writing weekend. We're going to eat great food in a beautiful, comfortable inn in Long Beach, Washington on the beach. We're going to encourage and support one another, and we're going to put in hours in moving our word count forward on those projects. It's just going to be a small group of focused writers all doing the same thing, maximum of 12 participants. There'll be optional sessions for feedback if that's helpful to you, and you will get a lot done. You know you've got that project you're trying to finish. Make an investment. Take the time. Come and be a part. Get the next three chapters done. Finish your outline. Get that proposal written. There's just a couple of spots left. So if you're interested, hit the link in the notes to see the details and reserve your space. Now, on to the good stuff. From time to time, there are people that I want you to meet. People who have something really helpful to say that I think you ought to know. When that happens, I deviate from my normal podcast routine to share a conversation with you, and that's happening today. In the past couple of years, the subject of sexual abuse and survivors of sexual abuse and our response to sexual abuse as a culture and even as churches has become a really hot and present topic. Somewhere between 20 to 50% of the people in your life have experienced some level of sexual abuse. That's stunning. That also means that there's an uncomfortably high percentage of people out there who are doing this damage. This is an uncomfortable topic, but we cannot ignore it. And so today I'm going to share a conversation with you that I had with Mary DeMuth. Mary is an author and a speaker. She's written more than 30 books. She's also a childhood sexual abuse and trauma survivor. She was repeatedly raped as a five-year-old. And when she told what was happening to the people who were in a position to help her, they did not believe her. It was only years and years later that people who cared for her began to believe her story and she was able to begin a path of healing and recovery. And she's walked that path for a long time and she has some deep wisdom to share. That journey has informed a lot of her writing. Now, a few years ago, she wrote and self-published a book called Not Marked that she wrote to encourage people who've experienced sexual trauma. She self-published it because Christian publishers at the time would not touch the topic. It's a topic that we in the church would just rather avoid. But as you know, times have changed. Just a few weeks ago, Mary released a second book on the subject called We Too, How the Church Can Respond Redemptively to the Sexual Abuse Crisis. This is a book that I think every pastor, every ministry leader, every Christian who wants the church to be a place of healing needs to read. And that is why I am sharing this conversation with you that I had with Mary. All right, here we go. 
Well, everybody, I'd like you to welcome Mary DeMuth. I've already told you a little bit about her and her journey, and I'm so excited to be able to have her here to talk about her new book, We Too. And so to jump right in, the first question is simply this, Mary, why this book and why now? Right. (laughs) Good question. Um, As we know, uh, after the Me Too movement started, um, we began to finally have some conversations around sexual abuse. And uh, the the Catholic sexual abuse scandal has been around for a long time now, as seen by the movie Spotlight and how that's been uncovered. And it's continuing to unfold and sometimes not in good ways and sometimes in good ways, depending. And I think a lot of Protestants kind of felt like, oh, this is a Catholic issue and we don't right. really need to deal with it because we're super awesome and authentic and open. And uh, and what we found <laughs> is that that's not the case, that it's just the same. It's just a different institutional hierarchy. Right. And in some ways it's harder because there is no institutional hierarchy you can kind of get away with it a little easier. There's not a lot of records kept and it's a lot of he said, she said. And, and so it's been a problem for a long time. And now through some of these scandals that have come up in the past year or so, and on the heels of me too, um, we're beginning to have a reckoning, kind of a holy reckoning of what's going on. And I've been talking about this for a thousand years and, uh, Uh, actually been speaking about it for a really long time and have been writing about it since the mid 2000s. And so really felt like I've had all these um, varieties of experiences. And I felt like this was the right time to write this book for this generation and for this next phase of the church. Yeah. And you're not coming from a perspective that church is terrible and church people are malicious. And this just shows like you're coming from a position of love saying this is this is not this is not who we should be. Exactly. <laughs> so why so why do you think it has looked the way that it has looked? Why why do you think that it's so easy for for us, for church people to be in denial about the, the crisis of sexual abuse that's happening in our communities? Right. And there's two ways to kind of tackle this issue. You could talk about it from the issue of random sexual abuse that happens all over the world in different contexts. And then those people coming to your church, you can also talk about it as um, sexual abuse that's happening within the church. So those are two different issues, but the, but it still has the same, oftentimes has the same reaction. If a victim comes to her pastor or his pastor and shares that they were sexually abused and it wasn't in the church, a lot of times that um, pastor doesn't know what to do with it. And And also there's this culture of kind of this cliched culture that once you meet Jesus, there's this weird gospel narrative that isn't really the gospel that says, once you meet Jesus, everything's perfect and it must be perfect from here on out. And our church culture echoes that as well. I mean, I've been to church for a long time and I can recall on one hand over decades of going to church, how many times a story like mine was shared from the front. And what that does is it makes me feel like I'm crazy, even though I intellectually know the statistics that a whole bunch of us sitting in the pews are having this story. It doesn't help to never have it talked about. And so let's hold on that for a second. Hold that. on that for yeah, a second. Yeah. So the statistics, what, what's the, what's the statistic? Well, I like to say it's a hundred percent statistic <laughs> because 
because I think 100% of us has either been sexually abused in some way or we know someone and love someone that has been. Right. And so therefore, I think all of us, but I think um, the current stat, it's less than 50%, but it's more than, obviously more than 20%. Right. So if you're sitting in that room with 100 people, a significant group of people have been touched by this. And then you're thinking about your experience of looking at the platform and hearing the stories that are focused on and the narratives that are shared. And in all of your years, those stories are not reflecting the reality. Right. And even the biblical narrative has rape narratives in it. So that they just haven't simply been covered or talked about or anything. And then we have to go into the fact that most people don't talk about their abuse. A lot of people don't. So this stat is probably not true. And then we have to go to the other stat that even if someone makes an outcry and the police get involved, so few of sexual abusers are actually prosecuted. Mm -hmm. And so even like if you're talking about keeping your own church safe, even if you do a background check, there could be someone who is credibly accused but won't show up on a background check. And so this is a, this is a multi-layered problem in protection. It's a multi-layered problem in believing. It's a multi-layered problem in preaching and teaching about this is what happens and here's how we can be redemptive about it. You said something in passing that I want to jump back to. You said that there's rape narratives in scripture. Is that something that is surprising to people when you say that? Is that like, that's not something we talk about. Like there's not like a section in the normal discipleship process where we study the rape narratives of scripture, I don't think, <laughs> right? Oh, well, right. And so when I, I wrote a chapter about it in the book and um, there wasn't a lot, you know, I couldn't find a lot of research and I just had to find them and exegete them as best I could. We just gloss over it. And one of the things I say in the book is that the rape narratives are not prescriptive, they're descriptive. Sure, right. So, so it's just because it's mentioned doesn't mean it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's right, mentioned right. to describe. And as you look at the aftermath of rapes that happen, especially in the Old Testament, um, as you look at those, the aftermath is horrid. Yeah, and yeah. and so there, this is like the greatest cautionary tale. Like when you do this and when this happens in a community, this is the disintegration that happens afterwards. That's so fascinating. I mean, it, the the stories are there. They're in the lives of characters that we learn their names. We know these people. I mean, some of them, I think you mentioned in the in the book, are even reflected a little bit in the genealogy of Jesus, right. right? That you have in Matthew and Luke the genealogy, and there's women that are named that are you know progenitors of Jesus that are people who experienced rape or sexual abuse, and yet it's not something that we talk about in church very often because it's uncomfortable because obviously people shouldn't rape. We don't need to talk about it, like. And then you're sitting in that room as a churchgoer, never hearing these narratives, but carrying your own story. How does that impact you? Right. So it makes me feel really alone. Mm -hmm. And I, I think about a lot of the outcries I've received from women that have been in domestic violence situations. They have that same story. It's just not talked about. Yeah. And when it's not talked about, you feel like you are the only one with that story and you feel like it's unimportant. And, you know, I see churches, I go to a very large church in Texas, you see um, churches put up testimony videos of people. Right. And it's almost always like our marriage is on the rocks, but then it was better. He had a porn addiction. Now he's better. 
or I was addicted to drugs, now I'm better. But they don't talk about some of these like deeper traumatic scars that people carry around because the truth is if you have trauma, the gift that keeps on giving Mm -hmm. (laughs) and giving and giving, um, it's going to be a lifelong process of sanctification and um, of healing. And we need to let people know who have been trauma victims that it's not a one and done. Yes. It's not, well, just get prayed for once and it's fine or go to this healing service and you'll be fine or have someone lay their hands on you and you'll be fine. It's kind of like folks who are immediately delivered from drug abuse. That's pretty rare. Right. Most of the time, people who are um, recovering from alcoholism or drug abuse addiction uh, take a life. It's a lifetime battle for them. And that's what it's like for sec- most sexual abuse victims is that it's going to take years. Is it unfair? Absolutely. It's totally unfair. Is it frustrating? Absolutely. Very frustrating. But I think we've set up this false narrative and we say, you know, if you just could pray this prayer, you just do this, it's going to be better. And then if you still struggle, you feel like, oh, there's something wrong with me because I didn't do the formula right or I didn't, you know, pray enough right. or whatever. Right. And that's interesting because in, in a way, um, there's, a, there's almost a little bit of a re-traumatization there right? Because you go back to the narrative of sexual abuse. One of the things that seems to happen a lot is a sort of sequence of questions that kind of imply that that victim has culpability in their abuse, right? Why were you at that place? Or why were you wearing what you were wearing? Or didn't you know this guy was this kind of guy or whatever the thing Mm -hmm. is, right? Yeah. And that's very common. And it happens both in the church setting and in the family setting where, uh, when someone doesn't believe you Mm -hmm. and those kinds of questions hint at, I don't really believe you. What were you wearing? Where were you? Why were you there? Um, didn't you know that person was that way? All those kind of questions are the same. And they are basically saying, I don't really want to live in a world that has, you know, people like that in it. So I'm just not going to believe that you were hurt by someone like that. And, um, so that, that becomes a problem. It becomes secondary trauma. And a lot of times, a lot of the trauma victims that I speak to, they're struggling more with a secondary trauma than with a primary trauma. And they're particularly hurt when someone pushes against them. And that's why the first person that you tell, it can be really hard if that person pushes against you. That was my experience. I, well, the first person I told was my babysitter who was supposed to rescue me and she never did. And so yeah. she just, and she kept pushing me out to get more abuse. So she was awesome. When I finally told one of my parents when I was 15, um, so it had happened 10 years prior, I had to tell the story so many different times to convince the person that I was telling the truth. And that was traumatizing for me as well. And so that is, that is a difficult thing. And that's why some of the most powerful words to other people is I believe you. Yeah. If someone's making an outcry, almost always it's not a false accusation. It's less than 5% is a false accusation. And if there is a false accusation, if we hand it over to the authorities, it's almost always uncovered as a false accusation. So even there, you can go below 4% in that sense. So why don't we err on the side of belief? We need to do that. Particularly, I think, when we're talking about powerful or well-known or trusted leaders. And so then that brings us back into the domain of the church, because then we can talk about when the people who've done abuse are pastors or leaders in the church, like those are people we tend to trust. Those are people we build relationships with. We care about them. We feel like we were known. We have a relationship with that person. And then someone says, this terrible thing happened. This person did this to me. 
and there's this almost instinctive response of, that can't possibly be true. This is a person I trust. We've seen this um, over the past year in almost startling clarity. There is a pattern that happens. Someone brings an outcry. That's the first step. And they are the brave one that is the linchpin of many stories. So Mm. they start and it's terrifying for them and they are traumatized again by doing it. Oftentimes they will have spent months and years trying to talk to the institution. And when they finally get nowhere, they uh, sadly go to the press because that's their last. and, And I don't mean sadly in a it's unfortunate. I mean, it's unfortunate. They should have been able to go to the institution and right. been heard, right. but they tried everything. They go to the institution, nothing happens. They go to the press. The first response of the, the leaders of that particular, you know, whichever church it's about, um, is denial, believing the leader and, um, saying that Satan is trying to bring down the church almost always. And then people with that are the ones that stood up and then all the other ones that continue to stand up then become Satan's minions about church destruction and that they are only um, interested in, in that. So you're trying to cause division. Right. And then, um, and then after more and more and more victims come forward, the leaders of the movement or the church backpedal and they offer um, superficial apologies. And then when more things come to light, then the poop hits the fan and the leader is dismissed and they make more apologies about, oh, we're really sorry. We probably should have saw that, but not really reparative apologies. Meanwhile, the people that stood up and did this are um, completely devastated. Mm -hmm. And then the the church structure uh, usually falls apart after all of that. And so the thing that they were very much trying to do, which was preserve the structure and preserve the church, has now become their downfall. And yeah. uh, in the in the book, I talk a little bit about Church A and Church B. Church A yes. is the one that, um, okay, we don't want to talk about this. We're going to shove it down and we're going to, you know, not do anything and we're going to keep it silent and then everything will be fine. Church B, which I learned about a church like this in Houston in about 2005, I believe, or 2004, um, the guy was at the Southern Baptist Convention, pastor, heard about one of his uh, youth leaders doing something bad, flew home, ca- uh, found out about it, turned the guy into the police, called the press, got ahead of it and said, this terrible thing happened on our watch. We're so sorry. Called a, a meeting for the entire church, apologized, repented, said he was sorry that he wished that he would have known that this would have happened. And it, it was, he's grieving. He offered, the church offered the victim lifetime counseling And the testimony that's kind of amazing and beautiful to that particular story is that the girl who was molested by her youth pastor ended up marrying someone who was a pastor. So her healing story had gone an Mm. amazing amount of, you know, space to be able to do that. And so I would rather go to church B. Right. Yes, it's going to happen. Sadly, it's going to happen there. Churches are magnets for abusers and we do everything we possibly can to prevent it. But if it does... Let's not hide it. In that segment in the book where you talked about uh, Church A and Church B, one of the things I was thinking about reading that is that I think one of the motives that we have when a story like this comes out 
is we love our church. Obviously, we've got a deep connection to it. We've got a deep connection to these people. For many of us, church is our primary community. And so it's really important, not just spiritually, but as a part of the structure of our lives. And so something like this comes out and there's a lot of fear that this is going to destroy the church or you know something is going to happen that's going to take away what we love. Of course, that's all self-centered. It's not thinking about the victim at all. And so then the res- nope. and so then the response is we have to protect this precious thing that we have. The church that was motivated by the fear of protecting the institution is the church that took the most damage. And so this terrible thing happened and it ends up being that the church that names it and faces it and goes through the difficulty is actually the church with the greater witness. Yeah, I agree. And it's ironic that the thing that you're trying to do, protect a church, doesn't do it. And yes. when you expose the church and own up to whatever has happened, you end up actually protecting the church. And you make people feel like, oh, this is a leadership I can trust. They're right. not hi- hiding anything. They're broken about this. And, you know, I've there's been some recent things happening within, you know, particular churches where, you know, I hear behind the scenes that the leaders are really sad about everything, but it's never communicated publicly. Right. Why aren't they saying that out loud in front of people? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, oh, well, they're really sad. And they cried and they found out, well, that's great. But uh, there's a victim here and many victims. And so they need to know too, that you're crushed by it. Right. Because it's not just the victim that that particular incident happened to, but also the reality that there are other victims, maybe other victims of the same perpetrator, but certainly, certainly victims of other circumstances. Sure. who are watching this and either mm-hmm. having their narrative reaffirmed, I will not be heard, I will not be trusted, mm-hmm. I will not be cared for, or seeing the possibility that things could be different. Right. And I think um, we should err on the side of how Jesus would handle that situation. And we see him um, talking about things really openly like that. You've got the woman caught caught in the sin of adultery, but you have her as she's probably marginalized and where's the man who is caught in adultery. And he, he, um, you know, he brings to light the whole thing and he says, you know, here's some stones and go ahead and hit her. But he was about the, you know, without sin cast the first stone and he's left alone with her and he redeems her and gives her a new life. And he names what's going on. And, and so I think we have to be super careful. The one, the one narrative that I find fascinating that Jesus talks about is the Good Samaritan. And what is beautiful about that is as Jesus as a storyteller, we often call it the parable of the Good Samaritan, but it's actually the story of the Jew that got robbed. Mm-hmm. And he's placing those Jewish leaders in the body of the one who has been violated. And he's saying, identify with this man. And then he's saying, look, this is his, the, their own people. The, the Jewish man, his, his pastor is walking by. His priest is walking by and not helping. And it's only an outsider that's helping him. And you know what? That same dynamic is happening today. We have sexual abuse victims who are being more helped by the legal system. They're being more helped by the press than the very people that should be identifying with them the most, their own people, their leaders. And this is how, this is not how it should be. That's stunning. And, and, and it's really convicting when you say that, you know, that, that 
that everything that we have about the narrative, what it means to follow Jesus is about this other centered co-suffering love, right? Jesus model of the cross. He's going to bear the cross for us. He's going to go into that difficult, painful place for us. That this is the model that we have. And yet it seems like it's so comfortable and natural for us to revert to a model of apparent strength and we're right, and no, this couldn't have happened here, not in our circumstance, or not that person. You know, I've been reading that guy's books for years. Mm-hmm. You know, he's been mentoring me and how I pastor. It couldn't possibly be that he did that. You know, that just, we just are in so much denial about it. That's the thing that I like to call the happy world syndrome. And what that is, is that we like to, first of all, we like to divide our lives into sec- secular and sacred. And so in the sacred area, bad things cannot happen. But in the secular arena, then bad things can happen there. So if someone comes and says, there's been something bad that happened in your, in your sacred little compartment, uh-huh. we're going to push against it because we want a happy world. And that yeah. messes with our idea of a happy world. In our happy world, pastors don't do stuff like that. Yes. In a happy world, children are not, are not abused. In a happy world, no one is defrauded. But those things are occurring because we do live in a fallen world, not a happy world, realizing that it is a broken world and um, we may need to have our fallacies shattered in order to shed light on the darkness. Yeah, that that's so uncomfortable. <laughs> I, I know. I don't like it either. I want a happy world. Who doesn't want a happy world? <laughs> I don't I want my it... fallacies shattered. I don't. I don't. I don't like that actually. <laughs> okay. I'll just live in my fallacies. <laughs> All right. So one of the things that I think we're beginning to learn more about as a culture is the impact uh, on a person's brain and life experience of trauma. Mm-hmm. That it's not just. A bad event happened to you at one point in time, and there were consequences for that. But that as a result, there's an ongoing kind of wound uh, psychologically that has this trauma impact on your life in, in many ways, right? Your story, your primary trauma happened when you were very young. Mm-hmm. And then you had, if I recall, a season maybe in college where you sort of felt like, I've been healed from this. God has shown up for me, right? God showed yes, up for me. Yeah. And, and I, I can, I can acknowledge that this happened and I can acknowledge that I've been healed. And then turns out hmm. that that wasn't the full story. Right. And so I think for a lot of people who don't understand it, it it's easy for them to go, but that happened to you so long ago, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That happened so long ago. Why is it still something that's impacting you now? What's your, experience or insight on that. So yeah, I think it's really important that we understand it and that we don't push cliches onto people. And we're very good at that. Um, You know, God will cause us to work together for all things to work together for the good as, as if a blame is necessary for someone who hurts. Right. And um, when someone else has harmed them, and I've often said shame belongs to the one who inflicted the harm, not the one who has had the harm. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And, but so many victims feel like the shame is mine because I was chosen to be hurt, but really it belongs to the person who chose to perpetrate. One of the things that has helped me to help others has just simply to been to ask this question. And that is, have you ever lost someone close to you? Mm -hmm. And almost everybody will say yes. And I'll say, 
well, how is that recovery? Oh, it's, you know, hard, difficult. Um, You know, you kind of get, it gets better over the years. And I said, but have you ever gotten over that loss? Hmm, Right. No, no. I mean, you know, that person's gone forever. And sexual abuse is that kind of a trauma. It's that kind of a grief you've been stolen from. Hmm. Uh, The life that you had before that moment is no longer there. A friend of mine, um, David Pittman had a friend that said, uh, and I think it was an investigator that said um, rape is murder that leaves the victim of, alive. And so uh, we have to remember that that's how significant it is. And so if someone can't relate to your pain as a trauma survivor of sexual abuse, try to help them to understand by saying it's like losing your favorite loved one. Mm. And you'll never get over it. You will have, you know, days where it's really hard, days where it's good, but you'll always miss that person. You'll always have that grief. Yeah. Well, that's a really great insight, I think, because I can immediately relate to that from my own story. Uh, You know, my dad died when I was 11. That was a formative trauma in my life. And there are still moments in time where I'm connected back to that or where I think, I wonder how life would have been if that event hadn't happened. You know, Mm -hmm. how would my life be different now if, you know, and that, that is an ongoing track, you know? And so you're right. That's, that's real. And if we don't have space for that in our relationship with one another, if we don't have space for that as a church, then that person who's sitting amongst us as a, as an abuse survivor is going to feel outside. They're going to feel unincluded. They're going to feel like something's wrong with them. That's going to be how it goes. Early on in the book, you said, uh, though the church should be the safest place on earth for abuse survivors, sadly it is not. And often it is our own fellow church members who mock us, belittle us, and attack our character. So what is the path from your perception forward from that reality? When I talk to church leaders about this, the first thing I say, and I've talked about this already in this interview, is please tell those stories from the pulpit whether it's you telling them or someone else sharing their own redemptive story. I mean, it doesn't have to be a, you know, like this doom and gloom story about, you know, all the horrible things it can be uh, told in a way that is redemptive. Um, So that will be a great help. And to remember that when you do that, you need to be prepared. So there needs to be some structure underneath that of, do you have resources for sexual abuse survivors? Do you have, you know, groups that meet that, um, can help or Stevens ministers or a list of good um, counselors or whatever, you will get that. Whenever I have spoken before any of this issue ever came to light. So way back in the two thousands early, when I would, I would dare to go to church and share my testimony and my story of sexual abuse is in there. And a lot of people were uncomfortable with it, but the line that came up to me afterwards was always long. And there were always women in there who are like 70 years old, who were whispering and crying. I've never told this story before. And that needs to be done. I mean, we need to tell that story so that other people, the beginning of this changing is storytelling. Yes, It's us being telling stories from the pulpit and us telling stories to each other and informing each other so that we can have empathy and walk in the shoes of other people. That's what Jesus did. He came to earth to walk in our shoes or in our sandals, and he wanted to understand what it was like to be human on this earth in this sin-scarred world. And so if he did that in the incarnation, then that is what the church is to be to the world today. We need to incarnate 
this compassion, this empathy. It doesn't mean we just, you know, we dismiss truth. It doesn't mean we don't love scripture. I'm very much in love with scripture. So please don't think that that's it. I am constantly being accused of being theologically liberal and it's, it makes me laugh. I'm like, do you know, I'm married to a Dallas seminary grad. Like this is just because I advocate for people who are being overlooked. And I would think as a church leader and as a church attender, that you wouldn't want to stand before Jesus someday and realize that you overlooked the very tutors that were going to lead you closer to the heart of Jesus. Oh man, that is, that is so, so powerful. Um, I've heard you say so many times and, uh, both you've said it in, uh, we too, I think you said it in not marked. I've heard you say so many times an untold story, Mm -hmm. uh, never heals. And that motivation that we talked about at the beginning where, where the church's intuition is to sort of want to push away from this, want to hide it, want to not, ha- not to deal with it, that motivation is because, like you said, we want the happy place. Mm-hmm. We want to not deal with the mess. But the healing is the happy place, yeah. right? And, and so you have created a window with this book where you've told your story and that's giving other people, I think, permission to tell their story. I mean, we're seeing that in the launch team that mm-hmm. you have assembled for this book. You know, I've been in a few of those and, you know, people get involved to be able to read the book early and maybe write a review about it and share it with their friends. But that private Facebook group, it is, it is literally full wall to wall of people telling their personal stories, their personal stories of being sidelined in the church because of their story, like it's just overwhelming. And that's this one Facebook group mm-hmm. of 600 people. Mm-hmm. That's not all of the churches. All, I mean, this is this is a big deal. And so thank you very much for telling your story. You've been doing it for mm-hmm. a long time and I know that it has been really hard on you and hard for you. Um, thank you for doing that. And thank you for writing this book, uh, especially, um, you know, one of the things that authors get to do when they write books is define their audience. You know, our agents and publishers tell us, who are you writing mm-hmm. this book for? Yes. And it's tough to write a book for people who don't want to read the book that you're writing <laughs> yeah. for them. That's a really hard audience. <laughs> yeah. Like the people who don't, who want to not hear any of this are the people that you're writing this book for. <laughs> and so, Yes. Please drink this syrup of Epicac. It's going to make you throw up, but it will get the poison out. That's right. exactly what it is. <laughs> right. So that, that's a very brave and difficult thing. So thank you for the work that you've put in to be honest and faithful and open. I just, I really appreciate it. And I'm so thankful for your work. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's, it's been a blessing and I'm, I feel privileged to have been able to write it. Wow. I'm just so awed by Mary's courage and her wisdom. Do we believe that the church is supposed to be a place of healing? If we do, then this is a conversation we can't ignore. Like Mary said, when you're sitting in a church congregation, somewhere between 20 to 50% of the people around you have experienced the trauma of some kind of sexual abuse. These precious people have something important to say to us, and it's time we listened, and it's time we believed them. Get Mary's book. Read it. Share it with the pastors and ministry leaders that you know. I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. Let's do what we can to make sure our churches are safe and healing places for people who've experienced trauma.
Now, if you're one of those folks who've experienced the trauma of sexual abuse, I want you to know that your story matters. Your pain matters. It matters to God and it matters to us. You need to know that you're not alone. May you find the healing that you need and a community that can surround you with love and encouragement so that you can know profoundly that you are beloved. And if you're one of the folks who loves the church and wants it to be the best it can be, then know you have a role to play in creating that environment. May you have the compassion to believe the victims and the courage to be part of bringing restoration. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. That way you won't miss anything. You can subscribe on iTunes or the new uh, podcast app. You can also subscribe in all of the different podcast apps out there. So whatever tool you like to use to listen to podcasts, you can find this podcast there. There's also a video version on my YouTube channel. If you prefer to see my face, you can subscribe there. I would be so grateful if you take a moment to rate or review this podcast in Apple's podcast app, because that helps other people decide if this podcast is worth their time. And of course, you will find the show notes for today's episode, including any scriptures and any links that were mentioned uh, at www.markallenshelsky.com forward slash T-A-W-0-2-3. Until next time, remember, in this one present moment, you are loved, you are known, and you are not alone.